What defines success? You think about life and you say, okay, ordinary inputs lead to ordinary outputs. If you want extraordinary outcomes, it has to be extraordinary inputs. What happens when you get knocked down? I don't think there's one worse mistake. I think unfortunately what happens is you make a mistake and then you try to fix that mistake by making a series of other mistakes and you often forget when was the first mistake made. What makes some people radiate? Big ideas mean big opportunities. It takes the same amount of effort to build a small company as to build a big company, so why not? This is Radiate. Hi everyone, thanks for joining Radiate, where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. He once took on broadcast television networks, and now he's taking on the big guys who deliver the internet. Chet Kanoji is a four-time entrepreneur who's just started his latest venture called Starry, which promises to deliver broadband to your home wirelessly. If I can explain it simply, I think of it like Wi-Fi over Wi-Fi. I've known Chet for years. I was there when he fought for his company, Aereo, all the way to the Supreme Court. And if you don't remember Aereo, its technology helped deliver television content on demand for free. All the big networks hated it because they could lose viewers on their own channels. So it's a great pleasure to have Chet joining us to talk about what drives him to keep battling the big guys. I think you'll enjoy this. Chet, great to have you on Radiate. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Chet, you know, I wanted to start off by by first asking you how Starry is doing. So Starry is what, your fourth company you've started? Give or take, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how is it doing? Good. Uh, you know, we're getting ready for, uh, we launched our first retail product, which uh, uh, got great reviews. So ramping up sales on that. And we're launching our first uh beta market for the uh, Starry Internet uh, service, which is uh, a wireless ISP, uh, which uh, is going to be in the Boston area in the summer. Uh, so firing on all cylinders, uh, growing. We're almost 70 people now, which is sort of hard to imagine, but uh, wow. all good. And how much did you raise? We didn't disclose the amount we raised, Betty, uh, but we've done uh, Series A mm-hmm. thus far. And, and what is the difference this time around than before? Well, the common theme is, you know, it's a big mission. So that's always helpful and fun and, and, you know, easy to recruit people in. Well, you like big ideas, though, Chet. I don't know if they're big ideas. These are all obvious ideas, but they're execution challenges, right? So so, uh, it's fun to do those. Uh, It's big ideas mean big opportunities. It takes the same amount of effort to build a small company as to build a big company. So why not? Right. right. The the obvious difference is that there are no sort of binary regulatory hurdles in our way. So, you know, um, we're cautiously optimistic that uh, things are things are going well. But you know, outside of that, you know, because I know what you're referring to, which is Aereo, which which of course had huge regulatory challenges that ultimately meant the, meant the end of the company. This time around, though, I mean, is it almost like? Because I'm curious, since me being a budding entrepreneur right now with Radiate. Uh, does it become like autopilot almost to you, you know, as you're starting a new company? It's never autopilot, right? Because so um, my view is, is the, the first and foremost, the most important thing that at this stage that matters is people. Who are the people and, and getting great talent to be attracted to you um, and, and build a great working relationship with all your colleagues and people that you are taking on a responsibility to bring into your company it's it's never autopilot right yes the mechanics of you know 
incorporation and financings and a lot of that stuff can get a little out of pilot and mechanical, but let's not, you know, the fundamental difference between a great company and a not great company is just the people. And recruiting people is hard. It is hard. So do you have any secrets to that? Transparency, number one. Um, and, uh, you know, which is partly why, you know, doing sort of like a big mission theme type of a company um, makes it harder on one level because a lot of people say you must be nuts that you're going to start a global ISP from scratch. <laughs> uh, that's That's just silly. On the other hand, People that see that there is the technological innovations make those things possible, uh, they get attracted to the mission, and uh, so it becomes a self-selecting group. Uh, so, so you know, keeping that along with the transparency, and and I manage personally. I'm a terrible manager, so the the my default management style is relationships with people I work with. And so, if you blend those three, and, and you know, I think that comes across with uh, your colleagues in interviews and everything else that, you know, okay, these are a group of people that uh, it's not just a job for them. This is their way of life. They love what they do. And so yeah, yeah. to the extent that you can project that uh, genuinely, I think, uh, helps. So when you mentioned your management style, so what is your default management style? Lack of it. Okay. Um, so my goal is to surround myself with people that are far more competent than I am and to be able to give them sufficient runway, a big enough mission, and then basically act as sort of a, a, a re- editor reviewer as opposed to telling them what to do. So how do you do that? Because aren't you tempted to make sure things are going the way you want them to go? I mean, I mean, how do you do that? Well, of course you're tempted to, to and more often than not, your my view is and my experience has been that the more temptation you have, the more you are likely to set it down the wrong way. Right, so you interesting uh, are going to, and if you're gonna, if you have been lucky enough to attract some really competent, good people, let them fail, because chances are, if this, in in particular, it's Starry, where the the number of disciplines involved, even in bringing a product to market and then marketing the product, are just so diverse that you just don't have any capability to span all of those. Right, so the the best you can do is. Get great people, give them a clear mission, set clear sort of hurdle rates, and then sufficient resources, and encourage them, and and you know do sort of an editor's function. And how do you do that? Like, how do you set the goals? Well, you work backwards from kind of where you want to end up in you know ten years, five years, twenty four months, twelve months, and then forget all the five and ten year stuff, right? And just basically focus on where do you want to end up in twelve months. And and I look at it that as you want to end up. What it should. What do you want to end up as in, in your cash position? Number first and foremost, because companies live and die by if they have money or they don't have money. Right. Where do you want to end up in your cash position? What are the milestones you want to meet by in getting to that cash position? Right, because when you start a company, you put in X million dollars and you're basically eating that cash down. So you want to end up. What are the milestones, and where do you want to end up in your cash position, and where do you, to the extent you have a, a you know, you may have a great big goal in five years or ten years, but all of it comes down to execution on those milestones. Mm. Do you have the right tactics to do that? So that's what you do, and then you break that down into monthlies, and then you break that down into. Uh, and I tend to do it on a monthly basis. This, right. this is the amount of progress I want to make month X, month Y, month, month Z. And you have to set big milestones very early on 
because human nature is that unless there is a target to hit, we won't hit it. Yeah. You know, if you give somebody a 10 foot target, they're going to hit a 10 foot target. If you give a sharpshooter a two inch target at 100 yards, they will hit it. They may take 10 times, but chances are they're going to get there. And that's really what you have to do is progressively make the target smaller and smaller. And and doing that, you found, has led to the greatest success. I mean, did, was that a lot of trial and error? I mean, early on in your life, were you more of a micromanager? 100%. Hmm. You know everything. Everybody else is an idiot around you. How could they possibly <laughs> accomplish anything? And and then you realize going through the process that, you know, no, most of these people are a lot smarter than you are. They're attracted to you for some intangible set of reasons. And so, you know, be comfortable with that and, and focus on what you can do the best, which is make sure they have resources. Jet, why are you an entrepreneur? I'm always curious about this with people who, you know, who built company or companies. Like, why do you do it? I like making things. It's fun, um, and it, and it is first and foremost. It's kind of the the most uh, satisfying thing to me is moving, you know, moving paper or, or coming up with an idea or a strategy is not that fun, not that attractive to me. <laughs> Making things is fun uh, because then you look at it and then you get all excited and then you use it, right? So those things are really kind of they induce a different type, of sort of like a neural pattern, I suppose. And then, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, have been fortunate enough that, you know, we've been around the block a few times. So we really evaluate all of these things in terms of, okay, so making things is cool. You know, hopefully if you make things and you take care of your customers and your employees, everything else sort of falls in line. You can take care of things. Uh, but at the end of the day, did you make something that moved the needle forward? Did, did it progress your, at least maybe it's a very narrow view, but your view of what you know, good world should be. Have you made any progress in that? And mm-hmm. then, so that's, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to die. Everybody dies, right? So you won't take money with you. You won't take anything else except, you know, did you accomplish something? And that's, did you make something? Is there your name on uh, something that uh, people liked? So it's kind of cool. So that's how you define legacy in a way, right? Not even legacy, but just like a way of life. It's it's a lot of fun to make things. And were you like that as a kid? I mean, was there anything... Always. Yeah. Always, always, yeah. Like, tell me how. I mean, when I was 13 or 12, I had like a small speaker business because, you know, I figured out that you know, loudspeakers were expensive in India, so nobody really made bookshelf speakers. So I decided bookshelf speakers could be good business. <laughs> and a friend of mine had me used to make amplifiers, so we sort of teamed up. I made bookshelf speakers, really terrible bookshelf speakers. They, <laughs> <Right>. they, <laughs> they were priced right. Uh, terrible. Uh, so yeah, it's, I've always been like that. Uh, I always like making things. And do you think there's something from your immigrant background that has also helped you be an entrepreneur? I don't think so, no. Uh, I mean, maybe. I haven't thought about it that way. I, I think entrepreneurs are just, yeah, I, I think people are people, right? So so every yeah. culture, I think, has the same number or proportionally, I suspect, similar people who want to follow, be working at a big company. And they're probably equal number that are, um, I suspect, in the U.S., the U.S. probably attracts a lot more entrepreneurs given our policies and kind of who we idolize and, you know, incredible companies that have been built and, and not, not just recently, right, back from Standard Oil days or whatever or, or Vanderbilt. Uh, so I suspect a lot of people, there's probably a higher percentage. Right. But I think, you know, some people are just built that way. They want to buck the norm. What about in your childhood Outside of the fact that, you know, you built some speakers, at least you got the price right on them. What do you think in your childhood, whether it's something 
you know, that was taught from your parents or something else that happened to you that you think kind of was formative enough to make you who you are today? Because I always think these things, you know, go back to what happened when you were a kid. Uh, I, I do think parents create the right environment, or, or at least, uh, but it's funny, I, I, I'm one of three. Okay. Um, and the other two have nothing to do with entrepreneurship or, or anything else. They're, they're probably the most risk-averse, uh, steady-as-you-go people. What do they do? Are they older than you? No, one's older, one's younger. Okay. Um, my older sister's in India. She works for a nonprofit and, um, you know, married to a very successful man. And, and my younger brother works for Lincoln Labs here in Massachusetts. Hmm. And um, he's an engineer. And so, so yeah, it, it, but I do remember, I think, you know, we all three were raised, I think, um, with sort of the same, I, I guess, uh, uh, guidance in life, not guidance, how to, you know, targets that my parents set, in particular my dad, which was uh, be distinct, right? So that was his big thing was, you know, everybody has, everybody can live. That's not a, that's not a, you know, you're human, you'll figure it out. Right. But to do something distinctive, to, to create something interesting, now that's cool, that's interesting, that's fun, that's that's admirable. Hmm. So So that has always stayed in my sort of DNA is, is, you know, whenever I choose to do X versus Y, and this may be a flaw, by the way, I always choose the harder, distinct thing as opposed to the obvious, easy thing. Hmm. Even if it, it, the obvious one may be far more lucrative. Right. Is there an example, for instance, you can tell me in your life where you've done that? When we were starting, Aereo was a good example. Uh, it, it was, I could have, all my investors had done phenomenally well with my last company prior to that, and I was at a place in time and professionally and personally as well that I could have chosen and I was you know I had I was 38 or something like that right I could have basically said yeah let's just be a VC and that'd be kind of fun and I would have had a great 20-25 years career doing that or I could have you know joined a large company or things like that but of course being being me I decided to take on the entire you know media (laughs) industry in one shot Starry is another great example of that right I mean after area the could have easily said, okay, made a big run at it, and right. now it's time to start a gentle, kind B2B company that is going to provide, st- I don't know, I'm making this up, right, storage services to XYZ, or it'll be the sure. PQR for businesses or whatever. But uh, you know, none of those were exciting enough in the terms of A, technologically, B, trying to move the world forward. right? So so that sort of, unfortunately, that DNA kicks in and like, no, 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 you got to do the, the cool, crazy, fun thing. And why is that, Chet? Because I, I find that so fascinating. And, and you know, I don't want to put you on the on the therapist couch and start, <laughs> <laughs> start, start, start confessing to me your deep, dark secrets. But I'm always fascinated by that. Like, what drives, you know, what drives you to take that hard road? And I understand part of that is from your dad um, and saying to be distinct, but it's got to be more than that. So there's this, you know, you, you think about life and you say, okay, ordinary inputs lead to ordinary outputs. If you mm-hmm. were, if you want extraordinary outcomes, it has to be extraordinary inputs, mm-hmm. or just sheer random luck, which some of you know, yes, yes, it happens. Sometimes but yeah. happens, right? But more often than not, extraordinary outcomes mean extraordinary inputs. And do you live your life that way too, or does it just apply to your business? I try to, but I I don't think so. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think. Uh, my entire life, even on on personal side as well as uh, non-conventional, so I guess that is fairly consistent. The norm has never bothered me. I never follow sort of the, the prescribed path. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, whatever you think is the right thing to do, whatever you think is going to make you happy at the end of the day is what you do. So when you say your personal life is not the norm, like describe to me without getting too personal, but describe to me like what you mean by that. Uh, life choices you make in terms of you know who you're going, you know who your spouse is going to be, or why, or or how you create a family. All of those things have been driven very unconventionally for me. It's interesting because you know I, when I talk to people like. You know, some people who take very big risks, let's say, in, in finances or, you know, in business tell me that they're actually like the exact opposite. I think someone said this to me before, like that they're the exact opposite when it comes to their personal money, because even though they can take big risks with others, but because they take such big risks, they're also very conservative on their own. So I, I am very conservative on personal financial stuff. I live a very modest life and, you know. Don't do anything. A couple of stupid things, but not. not, not <laughs> but that's a different philosophical thing because I, I have an old school view, which is trying to make money with money is not the right thing to do. Because trying to make money is sort of money. Making money is an outcome. It's nice when it happens. It lets you buy a bunch of you know cool shoes and cars or planes or whatever. But if you're just trying to make money, and, and different people are different. This is not meant to be judgmental. You know, some right. people get true happiness because they think that's what they have created, and that's totally fine. But for me, creating money from money is like, you know, yes, your house can be a little bigger or, or more nicer vacation. But at the end of the day, I always measure myself, not purposefully, but just, I guess, because of, you know, who, who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. What you make? What you make something? Did you make something that nobody else could have? Did mm-hmm. you do something that nobody else had the courage to or had the smarts to or, or has had the tactical wherewithal to? And that's better for me. And that's how you measure success. For my personal self, yes. And and I find it very strange in our society. We always say he's very successful or she's very successful, which essentially means they have money. Right, exactly. Or power. Or power. Uh, and whenever we say he's a very successful artist, they have to qualify it by saying artist, right? Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting observation. Um, so you define success by accomplishments. Yeah. What kind of advice do you give other entrepreneurs? Like when you get people who, who say, Chet, you know, like, give me like your secrets to success. Like, what do you usually say? Number one, anything I will tell you is probably wrong because I'm more wrong than right. <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, you, for sure. And then... Uh, you know, do it for the right reasons. Try not to do it for making money. Mm-hmm. You know, having a good livelihood is good. That's great. But is making money always the wrong reason? Well, I think you make choices uh, if you're optimizing purely for making money that are not necessarily consistent with, I think, what is going to ultimately make you happy. Now, how do you make sure that you're taking care of your customers? So first, you've got to build a great product, good customer care, customer service. And then the rest is an outcome. But do you like specifically go out and talk to customers? Like even with Starry, like are you out there like, you know, making sure that you're in touch with them? Like, like oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious about the process that you do absolutely. it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, I just think that, uh, and I'm sort of, in, I love selling. Uh, I love selling my ideas, my products to people. I love sort of the pitch part, conven- convincing somebody to, to see your viewpoint from a product or service perspective is so so much fun. So uh, even at this early stage where we're just beginning to roll things out, it, myself, our CTO, we're all out. We canvas streets. We talk to people. People stop us because you know we're usually out doing field testing and things like that, and they'll come up to us and say, hey, what are you guys doing? So we'll engage, we'll talk, we'll describe what we're doing. 
get their viewpoint. How much would you pay? Why would you pay? What's happened? What's good? What's not in your experience here? So that's continuous. CEO is the best salesman for the company. The, the day you don't have a product or a salesperson, a product salesperson not running a company, you know, you're basically counting penny. You're a bean counter. I mean, I, I always love, like, I don't know if you've read that book, Bob loves his book, the, the about Detroit where the bean counters took over. I haven't, but I've heard about it. It's car guys versus bean counters. And it's just a fun read. I'm sure there's pros and cons and, and you know, counter arguments to each side. But it's really an interesting description and, and as an engineer, really a fun read to sort of go back and, and, you know, the reason, for example, you know, vast majority of the cars have V6s, is, is a leg, which is a terribly inefficient engine, by the way, uh, is because the bean counters decided that cutting a V8 block, which was the norm in the 50s and 60s, to, as we got to the fuel efficient part of the 70s, was the right thing, except for the Germans who still stuck with, you know, inline six motors, which were far more efficient, far more well balanced and created a much pleasurable consumer experience. So it's, it's just these, you know, time and again, we see sort of these examples of uh, people optimizing for money, which basically, what do you have? You have, you know, a largely decimated Detroit, or hopefully it's coming back now, but, you know, right. and, and lots and lots of foreign competition that came in and, and nobody else to blame except running the company the wrong way. Right. So you see yourself as the top salesman at the company. If the CEO cannot sell the product, they should get fired. They should get out of the job. Yeah. Get somebody else who can. Chet, what, what would you consider is your worst mistake? Or, or tell me a time when you've when you failed and what you learned from that. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> that happens every day. <laughs> uh, a lot of people say that, by the way, and I can identify as well. It's, 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 I don't think there's one worst mistake, right? I mean, it, it, I think, unfortunately, what happens is you make a mistake and then you try to fix that mistake by making a series of other mistakes. And, you know, and you often forget when was the first mistake made. So that really led to the the big mistake at the end, right? So I don't think I could sort of point out one. I could probably tell you hundreds of, you know, small mistakes that get compounded. Right. And I think the biggest mistake you can make is, and, you know, large companies make these mistakes, small companies make these mistakes, but they, I think largely they tend to be people mistakes. When, when you know there is somebody wrong in a job and you either don't have the courage to, make a change or you can justify not making a change because of saying well but if i made this change right now i would suffer in the short term because you know the person is doing xyz right that's always a big mistake you can make because you you know as as large companies are driven by shareholder like quarterly things small companies are driven by small term milestones right if you remember going back to it this is my end of year cash balance or 18 month out cash balance that I want. These are the milestones I want to hit. You know, the same fears get into you. You're basically saying, I'm going to get to that particular cash board. You know, right. I'm going to get those milestones if I don't do XYZ. You know, I hear this all the time from entrepreneurs and CEOs, which is one of their biggest mistakes is holding on to someone for too long. You know, mm -hmm. someone they should have let go earlier. And, you know, I, I imagine this, that must be something you've experienced as well. Yep. Are you able to avoid that the next time, or is it just, you know, how do you how do you shake that off? So one of my co-founders, Joe Lebowski, who's far more sophisticated about these things than I am, uh, has this really great saying: "Your peers fire you before your boss does." So what you really, as a leader or manager or whatever you want to call it, what you really want to be observing 
is peer interaction. Hmm. Basically, if you are not a person who can deliver for your peer group, they will stop sharing responsibility with you. Oh, that's interesting. And the moment you see that happen, you kind of have to have a honest conversation across the board and make a change. And how do you do that? Because that was one of our questions to to a lot of bosses, which which is how do you let someone go? Like, how do you fire someone? You know, you have to be honest up front and very clear. You know, we used to do that at Star, at Aereo. Prior to that, I was very bad at it. Here, it's much more, you know, make a decision. You have a conversation with the individual and say, look, th- this is, we think you are a good person, which is why we wanted you at the beginning. But given these set of circumstances, either we don't have faith in your judgment or it's not a good fit or what we thought the job was going to be is not what it's turned out to be. Because a lot of times, right, people will take aspirational jobs. And, and by aspirational, I don't mean climbing up the ladder in the same discipline that you're in versus much more of a sort of sideways aspirational job. So mm-hmm. a good example would be, you're an engineer who's, you know, who's done really well, but, you know, he's kind of written the same stupid, you know, module like 10 years in a row now, right? And wants to try his or her hand at something completely different. And they say, I want to go into product management. Or it's some marketing MBA type who wants, who's read that, you know, product management is where all the action is and they, that's what they want to do. But so, so they've taken an aspirational job and, it, and I think it's good for companies to, to do that. Uh, because you never know, right? One individual that can think outside the box and do something different can change the outcome completely. So it's good to take that risk. But you have to keep an eye on that risk because nine times out of 10 or eight times out of 10, that transition isn't going to happen. And why is that? I'm curious. Because people try to do their old job in a new gig, hmm. which is why people that come from large companies invariably don't succeed at a small company till the small company gets to a point where their large company gig can kick in. And more often than not, people in small companies can't necessarily just transition into a much larger company and succeed instantaneously because they still think that, you know, collecting four people around a table, making a decision and driving it through is the way to get it done. And they're forgetting human inertia and, you know, human politics and all that other stuff that goes with it. So, So you really have to be careful about People are basically going to try their old job in a new gig as a start. And very few will honestly walk in and say, you know what, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to do. That's not what I should do. I should do something completely different. Right. Very few people can actually make that transition and be honest with themselves about it. Yeah. And, and most people won't walk into a room and say, uh, I have no idea what people just talked about. So can somebody please explain this to me? <laughs> right. And, and, and still feel like, you know, they're not idiots. That's very true. Chet, curious a little bit, and you and I have talked a lot in the past about Aereo and sort of the aftermath, but was Aereo and the loss at the Supreme Court, was that considered your lowest moment in your career? No, gosh, no. The the whole point of Aereo was that sort of binary outcome one way or the other. And all of us, employees, founders, shareholders, everybody signed up for the exact same known risk, which was Either it's going to be incredible or it's going to be zero, and we have to be prepared for it. I think the the fact, and, and in all fairness, Betty, none of us expected, and that includes myself, that it was going to become sort of this big story. That wasn't the intention behind it. Right? The intention was we were going to win at the district court quietly. We are going to win at the circuit court quietly. Then we're going to take a step back, see what how the market is developing. We'll stay small and spend, you know, 5, 10, 20 million bucks and keep it in a way where we can figure out 
because we were convinced the industry was going to change and, and people were going to have to move content online and there was going to be a need for a platform that was neutral, safe, it wasn't controlled by Comcast or this or that or whatever. And lots and lots of people are going to need those core capabilities. I mean, a good example is MLBAM, right? I mean, that's kind of the function that they're providing in some ways. Right. And we said for linear television with time and place shifting capability in the cloud, this is going to be a really, really cool opportunity. So let's start here and see what happens. And it sort of snowballed after that. So we were kind of surprised at that. That was sort of the one unintended side effect, which I think in hindsight, I guess I should have known. I, I don't know. You know, media loves to talk about media, right? And then didn't yes. quite understand that when we were starting out. So in the end, what, what do you think you, you learned the most out of that? I, I guess I'm, from a cultural perspective that it was really interesting to see, heartening to see that despite the odds, you know, we were at 120 people by the time we shut the company down and people were still willing to be, you know, employees. We had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of users. People are still willing to, you know, buy the product or buy the service. Um, right. Even when we shut down, I mean, we would get, you know, as we hit pause and, and send an email out, you know, people, and we said we we're going to suspend, you know, char- and well, by the way, we're going to refund your last 30 days because of all this craziness. I, I think like 70% of our users emailed saying, no, 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 keep the money, keep charging us. You're going to need it to fight these people. <laughs> wow. So, so it was kind of, it was fun. It was great to learn that when you, and I'd never done direct to consumer prior to that, right? So, so to kind of get a sense that, what a brand entails in terms of its sensibility, in terms of uh, its appeal to consumers and how you sort of build that relationship uh, is pretty powerful. And if you can get it right outside of adverse circumstances, that's incredibly powerful. Second thing, I guess, you know, we, we all said this is the one and only time we're going to take said, this huge binary risk. It's worth it. So let's take it. Uh, and so we took it. And I don't think I will ever probably take such a huge binary risk ever after this. Mm-hmm. Not because of the risk in terms of capital. I think it was much more, It's in conclusion to me, it was much more of a, we created something really, really useful. In fact, I still talk to like a lot of TV execs and, and they say, well, we wish we had that platform now because we would have made use of it. Huh. Uh, not, not broadcasters, but in general, right? Uh, right. Linear programmers who are struggling to find distribution outlets. And in particular, I think as people are beginning to understand that they're no longer just content suppliers in this new world, they're content suppliers, marketers, technology platform, and and user interfaces all in one. And and I think the days where you could expect your company to just have a single competency in this are over. You have to be all of the above. It's kind of like, you know, Mark and Reason, it's like software is eating the world. That's it for this week. Please stay tuned for next week's episode. And did you know Radiate is now a video platform as well? So instead of just listening, you can now watch great leaders talk about their successes. This week, CEOs talk about how to hold better meetings because who actually loves sitting in a meeting? Not me. So watch it to find out what baloney has to do with holding a better meeting. Go to radiateinc.com to watch our videos, register for our premium offerings, sign up for our newsletter. Again, that's radiateinc.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. Talk to you next week on Radiate.